Welcome to Four Thoughts of Our Founders, the podcast for the Higher Education Leadership Foundation. We are practitioners, scholars, administrators, and researchers seeking to find like-minded individuals who are committed to creating rich cultural capital for the sole benefit of our HBCUs. Most importantly, we at Health uh, describe ourselves as zealots of this sacred space. Got a really special guest today, one of my home girls, no pun intended, uh, from Duval County, sister who is no stranger to health. Please welcome Brianna Haynes. Welcome, my sister. How are you? I'm wonderful. How about you? I am doing well. Excited to be here. Excited to be with us. Uh, First and foremost, how are things in your neck of the woods? Are you obeying um, COVID-19 rules and and guidelines, ma'am? I am obeying as much as I can. I find myself going to the store. that would be the case with you. I just knew that would be the case with you. No, you didn't. You didn't. What had (laughs) happened was... (laughs) But no, because I'm home and I'm cooking more, I realize I need to go to the grocery store more because okay. I'm running out of, you know, essential items. Yes. Um, no, so I, I get I, it. I feel, I feel like my grandmother, how she used to go to the store every day. Yes. And I couldn't understand why. I get it. I saw a, I saw a posting on Facebook the other day that asked uh, how many of us have uh a second refrigerator or a deep freezer in our garage or anywhere else in the room. Are you in those numbers? So if I had enough space, you know, I looked into a deep <laughs> freezer. Um, <laughs> I, look, I come from, a, you know, we are from Duval yes. County, Jacksonville, Florida, yes. as Southern as we can be. My yes. grandmother had two deep freezers in the garage. Yes. So I am a deep freezer girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I I, I I have in my ref, in my garage. There's a uh, secret second full refrigerator and a deep freezer. Thanks to Corona. <laughs> Look, and my refrigerator that I have in my office, uh, it has never been as stocked as it is now because it's the overflow. Yeah, man, I I'm not getting caught slipping. I still feel like there's going to be a time where we're told, you know, to stay in the house. Yes. I heard it's coming, um, and I, I just told someone, I said, I have to make sure that I have stockpiled enough food that I know that in two weeks I can have breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually doing this, uh, this app called Noom, so I'm going to challenge your breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snack to say a breakfast, morning snack, lunch, lunch snack and dinner with an evening snack. So there are three snacks in there to match those three meals, sister. So, you know, make sure that you've got enough for all those. Well, look, now I have to download Noom to find out what else I need to add. Listen, Noom Noom is everything, man. I'm telling you, I've never tried to lose weight or be conscious of of my health. I, you know, for those of you who are listening that follow the podcast, you've heard me say this uh, several times. This pot, this Noom uh, app is, man, it's giving me life. And I think, you know, also not being on the road as much, uh, thanks to Mm -hmm. Corona, I've had an Mm -hmm. opportunity to reconnect with, um, you know, just the things that were really important to me that I was sporadic in doing, like working out and, 
eating, um, you know, healthy food and meditation and, and those things that are really important that allow you to slow down. So in, exactly. in a lot of ways, this, this, um, there's been some good to come out of, uh, a ton of sadness and sorrow that this coronavirus has brought us. It's always a silver line. I was just telling somebody else that I said, this all happened for a reason and for a myriad of reasons for different people. Yeah. Right. Um, and there are some sad stories. And then I said, but we look on the positive side of this. People are finding themselves. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in ways. And some people are finding out they don't like themselves. Yeah, that too. <laughs> that, that could be and the case so, as well. Mm-hmm. When we get back together as one, um, I expect to see different uh, brighter, people. happier, yeah. yeah, different people. Yeah, <laughs> man, I I agree with that. I, that thank you for sharing that because I, I I agree with that completely. If you if you don't come back from this, um, you know, and I'm not even speaking on a spiritual um, level. Uh, mm-hmm. And I hope that people are finding uh, faith for me as God and Jesus, but um, to each his own. But I'm hoping that people come back transformed uh, from this experience. Our friends, um, you know, Absolutely. our associates, our colleagues. I'm hoping that we're better people um, as a result of having to sit our little asses down and, and really focus on what what really matters in most cases. Absolutely. More patient, more time, more grace. I love it. Well, in 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 a lot of ways, this conversation is one that is serious, one that calls for folks uh, to really grapple with or, or what people are really grappling with. And we're going to talk mm-hmm. about Title IX implications on a campus near you. Uh, more importantly, we're going to talk about sexual assault and how people are managing uh, sexual assault. Uh, Brianna is a subject matter expert. Um, she's going to get into uh, what she has done for me to call her that. But in this particular area in the state of North Carolina, uh, which is where she's based, uh, but moves all about the country, um, educating campuses like ours on Title IX issues. Um, this is one that finds folks uh, in peculiar spaces and places. And so I'm really glad to know uh, that there is someone who is dedicated and committed to this space, not just uh, as a person who is um, found their vocation in this space, but somebody who really is a champion. So uh, thank you for being that, Brianna, and thank you for being a, a uh, practitioner, practitioner extraordinaire in this space. Um, Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit as, you know, one would gander if they've heard us um, uh, the first couple of minutes. You're from Duval County, Jacksonville, Florida. Um, yeah. Where'd you go to school? Uh, high school or college? No, college. <laughs> so, for undergrad, I am a proud graduate of the Florida Agriculture and Mechanical University on the highest of seven hills my, my. in Tallahassee. <laughs> Can't you always tell somebody that went to family? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. I don't know if you know Amelia Parnell. Do you know Amelia Parnell? I'm familiar with her. Yeah, so Amelia was the first uh, of our guests on Who's Next. And of course, she too is a rattler. And, um, you know, everybody that's a rattler. And being from Duval County, you, you're, you're kind of like quasi, um, or what do I say? Um, what do they call those people who are not a part of the organization? Like, um, <laughs> oh, um, 
gosh, what is what is that? Adjacent? No, um, you know when they let celebrities into fraternities, what are they honorary? Oh, honorary. So we're honorary. If you're from Duval County, you are honorary, uh, Bethune and Fam, uh, all day long. Like if you didn't go to college, you love both of those. Uh, they are. Well, or you have- Look, or you have to pick one. Or you have to pick one. But, you know, or most you people <laughs> most people in Duval County didn't necessarily go to college. Or, but but we we know so many people uh, didn't Absolutely. go to those colleges. But but we know so many people who went to them that we kind of like feel like we love both of those joints. Uh, it is only you. It is only you special people who went to one or the other that has, <laughs> uh, you know, some 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 pure animus for the other one. Right. Yes, yes, yes. But it's all love either yeah, way. I all day people. long. <laughs> all day long. So you went to FAM, done with FAM. What did you major in at FAM? So I started out in pharmacy, actually, and everybody uh, finds that to be funny. But um, I switched my major in my senior year. Pharmacy is a six-year program. I was in my fourth year, and I switched to physical therapy. <laughs> Why? Long story, I was young. I went to college at 16, and I tell people I have a message for younger ladies. Make sure you know what you want to do and you're not swayed by other people. I switched my major because I had a breakup and pharmacy is a cohort. And I just could not fathom at 19 going through this program with this young man. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I switched switched my major and the funny part about that is lo and behold, we ended up dating uh, after that. (laughs) Wow. But that wasn't, but, Everything happened divinely because I majored in physical therapy, uh, graduated, and did not become a physical therapist. Um, I went into education, mm-hmm. had a family friend. Um, I took a year off. It was my gap year after school uh-huh. to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. Had a family friend who was on the school board and said, hey, you have a background in science. Inner city middle school needs a science teacher. You're going. How long? I said, she said, four months. I was at that school for four years. <laughs> and that's kind of how I got an education. I started working my way through. I was a sixth grade science teacher, left there, and went on to become an administrator at Florida State College in mm-hmm. Jacksonville um, and got into some dual enrollment and then moved to St. Augustine and then started uh, actually how I moved into Title IX, the Title IX role. But before I did that, I obtained a master's degree. I have two masters, one in mental health counseling mm-hmm. and the other in school guidance from Webster University. Let's talk let's talk about some nuggets that that um, that helped you um, navigate the road. Right. So you started mm-hmm. out. I'm going to be a pharmacist, which, you know, a lot of people go to fam with with that in mm-hmm. mind. And we know Absolutely. that they have a phenomenal pharmacy school there. Um, yeah. And then you find yourself teaching. And from between teaching and graduate school, what were some of the invaluable lessons? First, let's 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 deal with this one, because I heard you okay. say this, a family friend, a family friend. <laughs> a family friend had the agency to get you into the school board um, in a way that probably the ordinary um, the ordinarily regular or the regular route that folks take you probably didn't have to take that am i right correct so let's talk about what network means and what it means to curate the network 
And so that I'm glad you, you said that. This is very important. Um, actually, this is one of the things that I always tell people I count outside of my faith in God being the head and kind of guiding my life. I have been enormously, richly blessed to have wonderful connections in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so prior to me, I, I left out of step. My first job before teaching, I worked for Willie Garrett. Oh, wow. Um, right. I worked, I worked for Willie Garrett at the time. What, what year was Garrett. that? That was 2004. Was, was, you know what? I have been trying to figure out where I know you from, Brianna, and not like <laughs> I, I really have. And I think it was, did you ever go to any of those Christmas parties? I was at a, a few of the Christmas parties. Um, so let me, so Willie Gary is our family, well, was is a really close friend of my grandfather who is really big in the state of Florida. He mm-hmm. um, pastored uh, the church for 50 years, same mm-hmm. church. He was president of Progressive m Baptist Convention. So that afforded him Dr. Henry T. Rim Sr., Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, former pastor of St. Joseph Missionary Baptist Church in Jacksonville. Yes, and indeed. so because of who my grandfather and the giant of a man he is, mm-hmm. I have been afforded to meet a variety of people in different spaces and settings. Um, and what's funny about that is I did not get the job off of my grandfather's name. Like I have never, I always tout myself. I have never used my grandfather's name until now I had to open my business. You're better than I am because I, you know, whatever connections (laughs) I have to get me uh, to where I need to get to or to be able to help others, I'm using them. Look, I didn't have that. That was a skill set that we talk about now that I wish I would have honed in on better. Right? I I was under the mindset that being humble and showing that I did it on my own would get me further. And the nugget that you missed in that is. Connection is brought in your life for a reason, and mm-hmm. there's a purpose that you meet everyone. Mm-hmm. And you never know as a reason what that person, what the link or the purpose is. But like old folks say, better by and by. That's right, and it doesn't <laughs> and it doesn't pay to be an asshole because you don't know who you knows never who. know. Yeah, who knows who? Um, it used to be six degrees of separation, but now I'm finding out it's more like three or two. Yep. Um, and your reputation precedes you before you even step in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another thing about making sure, and I, I believe in being authentic. Um, that's another nugget in part of networking. When you are networking, show up as yourself. Because it's hard for someone to talk about your name in a room you haven't stepped in yet, and the person who they're talking about shows up differently because you're not being yourself wherever you go authenticity rules my life. I agree. You know, being authentic is um, something that I tried my best to create uh, in my day job. Uh, I try my best to create a space where people can be their authentic self, because I know if you are authentic, I'm going to get the most out of you. So it's sort of selfish, but it's also what I believe to be a gift um, to people and uh, those who, who, you know, I have the fortune of working with. And so um, it is really, really important to stay away from the schizophrenic, um, you know, <laughs> the schizophrenic uh, personality. personality. Yes, it, is. Yeah. it absolutely is. And I tell people, um, so from that experience back in 2004, mm-hmm. um, not just meeting 
uh, working with Willie Gary and those that are attached to him. But from that, uh, at the time, I didn't know that I was working with the future mayor of Jacksonville. Yeah. The first black mayor of mm -hmm. Jacksonville was, was my immediate boss. Okay. Um, I was able to learn the ropes and bite my chops on HBCUs because if you remember, Willie Gary had the Willie Gary Classic, oh, which was a football game mm -hmm. between Shaw University and, and Edward, Edward Waters. Waters. Yep. Um, part of that, we also did a college fair. And so that was the big bulk of my job was to reach out to the admission recruiters to invite them to this college fair. And you have to remember, Willie Gary name is big, but the classic was not as big as a Florida classic or no, 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 Circle no. City classic, <laughs> no, right? No, no. So when, you, when you're asking, you know, you got to start thinking about budget and manpower and you're asking someone to send people what is the thing that they're sending people for and i realized a lot of it was my rapport building with those admission counselors at the time who have now gone on to have even higher positions mm -hmm. in higher ed um it was that that was what sold the deal right so i learned that it's networking authenticity mm -hmm. and relationship building yeah 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 i don't Absolutely. i don't i don't think you can underscore how really important it is for um, people to be able to call on a web of, of support, a web of friends, a web of colleagues um, to get what you need and to get where you want to go. Um, it's absolutely, absolutely critical and be not dismayed. It has been going on for a very long time and there is a certain segment in the populace that does it extremely well. Um, and we have to uh, we have to make Play sure that we're doing that. That's right. That's right. So <laughs> I, I, I like the fact that we're slowly walking into this heavy uh, subject, this heavy uh, uh, area that we're going into. Um, so you find yourself you skipped over the Willie Gary. Then you find we've we've covered the other things. You find yourself at St. Augustine's. Was was that with Dr. Uh, Diane Suber? Yes, Dr. Suber was president at the time. Awesome. Um, I arrived to St. Augustine's in 2013. Um, and so this is something else I, I tell people about the benefit of being authentic. I When I come into a room, I don't feed off of what somebody has said about somebody or a place. Because remember, coming from Florida, I had never lived in North Carolina. I, didn't, mm -hmm. I was unfamiliar with how HBCUs ran in North Carolina opposed to Florida, because it's a different world, um, especially with a private school. I was familiar with public schools and what that board of trustee or governor situation looked like um, in, in relation to policy. And so when I started working at St. Aug, I found my voice. I really did. Um, and was not afraid to speak out and, and in, a, in a positive way to affect change where I could affect change in my little bubble, mm -hmm. right? And I tell people the benefit of, of you not working for yourself, but working for the glory, one, who you who you serve for me, like you said, is Jesus, is God. Um, but two, for the, I was there for the students. I, I consider myself a truly student-centered um, ac academician. Mm -hmm. um, it's Everything I do, even with Title IX, yes, it's law, and yes, it is a taboo topic, but at the end of the day, who it really affects are our students. Absolutely. And and so 
how I showed up in my first job that I, because I came to St. Aug as a freshman writing initiative coordinator, right? Really long title. Basically, I was on a grant program and had to figure out um, engagement or retention activities for our freshmen using writing as the source. When I saw the job, it worked for me. Well, the the other thing that I would also add to that is, is when you when you found your voice, you felt comfortable. I think that happens when um, people make the space conducive to you finding your voice and being able to advocate for students and yourself. So so the culture has to be in place uh, for you to do that, too. So can we play devil's advocate on that? Sure. Um, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It, it's easier that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes you find yourself in spaces where that may not necessarily be the case. Mm-hmm. And my mom always told me that this is a saying I've heard since I was four. You rise above the circumstances, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes, this is bad. Yes, this is not how you, ideal. No, this is not how you want it. But what can you do where you are? Bloom where you're planted. So I may not be planted in the area to effect change across campus, you know, holistically. But if I am in the writing center, is this your space that you are in charge of? Is this your little cubicle area? How do you infuse a a space of positivity and acceptance and equality in where you are? Yeah, the impact that, yes, the impact that you have, um, you're completely, so I, I agree with you. And this is, this is a bifurcated, uh, response you have total autonomy um, as it relates to how you respond to whatever environment you may be in right mm-hmm. you might be at a place where um, the boss is narcissistic your boss's boss might be narcissistic and your boss's mm-hmm. boss's boss might even be more narcissistic <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that you have to be narcissistic as well. Absolutely. So that that I absolutely agree with you. And that helps. I think it is more powerful when or just as equally as powerful in both situations. I like the agency that people have when they can do it themselves, when they can be Mm -hmm. a bright spot in the midst of chaos. Um, But, you know, you like for students to be on campuses where there's a culture of empowerment where people can do the things that impact the students more um, than it is about any administrator or anyone else. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So how did you how did you make your way from writing, which is, first of all, how important is that? How often do you use that skill set? So in my line of work, I write every day. I mean, I'm a writer by nature. Mm -hmm. I'm a grant writer. Um, I'm in school for my PhD. So I'm a paper writer. (laughs) I am. um, My mom calls me when there's a program at church and she needs to speak. I write those. (laughs) Mm. Um, I've always loved to write. Right. So that, like I said, that was. I can look back on my resume and tell everybody this may not be everyone's story, but every position that I had was divinely placed in my life. And every position I had was a stepping stone to let led me to where I currently am now. Mm. And I believe that where I am now is not the end. 
it is another stepping stone is that another. is going to be even greater. Not even a stepping stone. It's just a stop. It's a stop yeah. along yeah. the journey. That That yeah. is it. Um, so A mile marker. <laughs> yes, a mile marker. And being able to determine what mile marker is really important. Um, because <laughs> if, if you're at one and there's 540 in front of you, boy, that's a long, long, long way to go. Um, but, um, so how, how'd you find yourself in this space? Um, in, in the, in the current space, was there another stop between, uh, the writing center and the title nine space or, or did Absolutely. you go? Okay. So I held several jobs and that's kind of when I go back to saying, uh, when you do your work, not for any applause, but do your work because it's the right thing to do. Um, your work will speak for itself. So I had a total of four jobs at Santa Justin before I left. Um, I started at the freshman writing um, initiative coordinator, and then my boss left, and I was moved into her executive director position um, space. So I held the executive director of freshman initiative space, as well as, as you know, a lot of times at HBCUs, we hold multiple positions. Um, I was also director of advising and tutorial services. Okay. From the from that position, um, I got a call. We had a, a leadership transition, and Dr. Ward, Everett Ward, came mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And someone told him that I had a master's degree in mental health counseling, and I would make a good Title IX coordinator. Now, I need everybody who's listening to understand that the two have, have no correlation. None, but, none <laughs> um, whatsoever. None whatsoever. And, and, and no correlation. Well, let me say this. Let me, let, me, let me correct myself. There is no written correlation. However, what I have, go back to what I was saying, I realized that having that skill set and that knowledge actually has propelled me in my job because it's allowed me to be empathetic um, to the needs of those that are involved in Title IX situations. I see. Um, And by having conflict resolution techniques, it also has allowed me to come in to other organizations within my business um, and to provide those solutions that people need. Mm-hmm. Um, to solve conflict that may have arose. So it is no written correlation, but I, I've been able to pull. Um, so I got a phone call on my cell phone one day. It was it was a school, and I was trying to figure out how the school had my cell phone number because I definitely did not have them programmed in. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, you know, I heard you have a master's in mental health. We need a Title IX coordinator. I think you'll be great for it. And I knew what Title IX was, I didn't know what it was as it stands today, but I had a, a general thought process of what it was. And I've all, like I said, I'm, I, my family is really big for me. And so the first I got the, the call, I called my mom and she said, well, let's go in prayer. Before you say anything, let's go in prayer. And we immediately, you know, had a conversation and I called her back and I said, I think I can take the job. Um, something else that I learned, my grandfather dropped a nugget on me is even if you don't know what to do, you figure out how to do it and be better than where you were before you started. Yes, um, and so with that, I asked for training. I said, my my uh, reply was, yes, I would love to take this job. However, I'm going to ask that you make sure that I get the training, proper and necessary training, because I know that the, the severity of what Title IX is for a campus it, it does rest on your shoulders 
And if I don't know what I'm doing, I could have put the, the school in a position for all sorts of libel, right? Um, and one of the things that we talk to universities about now when I go and train is it's easy for us just to place someone in Title IX position as a coordinator. However, we need to make sure that this person is someone who we vetted, um, someone who we have trained or oh, can no. train. No, I don't. They're smart. They can go over there and figure it out. Mm-mm, mm-mm. They can't figure it out. Look, and I'm not saying they have to be an attorney because I by no way means own a JD on my wall. Right. However, they also, they need to be someone who, and I, I'm, I'm, okay, this is part of my authenticity. They can't be messy. Um, <laughs> we, I often find that a confidentiality lot of is extremely important. It is extremely important. Yes. And a lot of the problems that we have on our campuses is that we have round pegs and squares. Yeah. Right. We so have that, we have the wrong personnel. So, so the notion that they're smart and they can figure it out is a flawed perception or perspective. It is very flawed. Gotcha. It is very flawed, gotcha. and um, it does more harm than good. And so, with that, after I received the training, then I realized that, they, honestly, we're, we're doing this wrong. Right. We're not. We're not doing this the way. Mm-hmm. And when I say we're, I mean not just where the school I was at. But HBCU, yeah, as a whole. Well, we're not doing this right. <laughs> so, so about that. That's a, that's a great segue to to my next question. Um, mm-hmm. Title IX is not new. It 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 is a new descriptor for challenges that have been with us forever, right? Forever, and, correct. But but how do you get a campus to to shift the culture? Um. Uh, of making sure that, you know, people are not um, doing things as simple as doing cat calls when young ladies are walking, you know, the guys in physical plant aren't, you know, going goo goo gaga over the young ladies um, mm-hmm. or, or women aren't objectifying men in ways that are uncomfortable to them. How do you shift a culture that may have been uh, charged with a lot of violations that people just dismiss as uh, that's not that's no big deal. How do you shift culture? It's really simple, but it's very complex. One word: education. We educate, um, and what I mean by that is, if there are a myriad of ways that we engage our students, but one of the things that I have been very um, adamant about is making sure that we are for HBCUs, creating culturally affirming, trauma-informed Title IX campuses. Say that, that was a lot t- Say that one more time. Culturally affirming mm-hmm. and trauma-informed Title IX campuses. So let's parse that and break that down and, and explain um, culturally okay. affirming. What do you mean by that? So culturally affirming. Um, a lot of the rules that are made, and it's especially Title IX, they were made with a general population of students in mind. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily the black and brown bodies that we educate so, on our campus. So that, 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 those are not like the Constitution, a living and breathing, a quote-unquote living and breathing uh, document, right? That Correct. That is just a rigid... Um, document that has governed us for some time that is not malleable to the way and 
which we move and those who we educate nowadays. Correct. And the thing about, well, let me say this. Under the past administration, campuses were given the autonomy to create Title IX programs as long as they had the, the basic element of what the mandate said, then they were allowed to create their programs how they saw fit for their campus. Now, which I am a proponent of making sure that it's equitable across the board. Mm-hmm. I am not a person to go on a campus and say, well, this doesn't work. Because every campus culture is different. So that's, so that's the culturally affirming piece. Yes, the culturally affirming piece, making sure that your policies, your procedures, and your protocols are affirming to the students that you serve. Mm, okay. Okay. Now, okay. was it, so I think you answered this question, but I want to be clear. Did you, how did you feel about the policies of the previous administration and, and that each campus was able to make a policy that was more malleable to their community and the populace that they serve? So as it was anything, there are pros and cons. Um, I am in favor of the detailed um, the, the detailed instructions that we're giving in under the former administration. But I will also say that it, and I'm going to get a lot of flack from this, it was skewed towards the victim survivor only. Mm. Um, there were not, there was not a lot of um, mandates or requirements that should have been given for the respondent as well. So now, so make the, that make that clear for everybody. The victim okay, survivor so, is who? The victim survivor in a Title IX situation would be we call those the reporting party. That would be the initi- the initiate of a complaint okay. for a Title IX All right. incident. And what is the accused was, called? The accused we like to call them the respondent. The, the, because the they respondent. are responding to the reporting God, party. God, that is so much like I, I that that terminology is psychologically even better, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you have a stigma associated with whether wrongfully or rightfully accused. the 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 descriptor is I would I would argue um, c- can be inflammatory and detrimental. Now, if you are a crummy individual who had put your crummy hands on somebody and you ain't have no crummy business doing it, then you get what you deserve. Right. Um, and you can be called whatever, but initially, initially, I think that language that you just described, um, helps people feel as though they, there is a burden and a hurdle, a burden for one and a hurdle for the other. And and the reason for that language also is, okay, for me, because I deal in social justice practices Mm -hmm. within Title IX, and I'm very trauma-informed. Ooh, so that's a good one. We're going to spend some time on that one, too. So that's some some good stuff there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even when someone is, and I like to call them a harm doer, right? Like Mm -hmm. even Instead of saying accused, a harm doer, because even though they may not have been... um, found guilty of the charge, they brought some kind of anguish allegedly to the other person, right? And so when you start using terminology such as accused, I start thinking about the person's psyche. Um, Because one, Title IX is not a criminal process. 
And I think I need to, I want to say that for people because I think a lot of times they think that, oh, it's a criminal process or mm-hmm. it's a second process to a police investigation. Mm-hmm. Title IX is none of those things. It is, um, one, it's almost civil rights in nature, right? Um, it is a civil process and it is a student conduct process. Um, and so when even when we are dealing with respondents, um, who have been allegedly um, charged with all of these heinous acts, right? You still have to understand that this is a 17, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old student mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day. And we are still dealing with people whose soft spots have not formed yet. <laughs> so how you handle them in this moment, even if they are wrong, can determine a lot how the rest of their life will look. The trauma. And I always tell yeah, the trauma of yes. it. And I always tell campuses, especially our HBCUs that are my clients, please understand that 35% of your students have already had trauma prior to coming on your campus. <laughs> They've already I would, been victimized. I would gander to say that that number is probably higher. And when it's I say trauma, of, holistically speaking, trauma. but yeah. but Racism. but you're Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I tell people, and so when you when you start thinking about how am I engaging with people who already have history of trauma, it's up for and then people say, well, that's not my job. I'm, my my job as a, as an educational institution is just to teach. But I will beg to differ because you have a psychosocial aspect. Mm. How do you expect to teach somebody if their physical and mental wellness is off? Mm. It doesn't work. And our job is bigger than you come in, get a degree, and I send you out in the world. No, our job, especially at HBCUs, are to bring you in and make you better and send you out a greater change agent that, so that you can reach back and heal. That's part of but the secret can. sauce, right? That's part of the secret that's sauce secret that sauce. makes us who we are. And we look, we don't get it right 100%, but by and large, uh, when a person comes through these portals uh, on, of an HBCU campus, um, they're probably going to have some some liminal moments. Some will have several. Uh, all will have at least one on these campuses just because of the mission of the institution um, and the people who believe in it. And we understand, holistically speaking, that it is our fiduciary responsibility, obligation, innately, um, to make kids better uh, than than they were when they came in. All colleges are supposed to do that, but I think the intentionality that happens on our campuses over and over and over again are are just uh, one of the secret ingredients into that special sauce. It, it, it's one of them. Absolutely. And I tell people, so you think about that and you have students, and like you said, the number is quite possibly higher. And so we have to start thinking about intersectional trauma. Um, so the students have at some point faced bias and discrimination and prejudice just as an African-American or a person of color. And then now you have homophobia or transphobia if you happen to be in the LGBTQIA population. Yeah, like that's I, a lot. It's, it's, <laughs> I, look, let me tell you something. I thought I was um, better than most in terms of being an advocate for the LGBTQ plus IA space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have come to understand based on the students here at Wiley 
and our uh, clinical psychologist here, Dr. Ray Lundy, who you know. Um, yeah. I've come to understand that there's still a whole lot more work to be done mm-hmm. than me getting up in front of our campus and saying, you know, all are welcomed here. We are gay, mm-hmm. we are transgender, we are this, we are that. We, we are everything. There's so much more that needs to go into it. Um, and mm-hmm. then understanding the trauma that uh, one black folks yeah. who identify as queer um, yeah. experience is on a whole, I, I can't say it's a different level. I'm not queer, but I would imagine that it's even tougher given that our society is less likely to be forgiving mm-hmm. and understanding. So carrying that trauma and then you, you know, I, I just can't imagine what that space is like for an 18, 19, 20 and 21 year old who have no idea what lays in front of them in terms of the world and their potential. Heck yeah, it's a lot. And I, and I often tell campuses, it is our duty to make sure that we are equipping them. So when I say being trauma informed, I'm not asking everyone to go out and get a degree in counseling. That's not what trauma informed is. Creating a trauma informed campus is creating a space of support that is equitable across the board, mm. um, providing access and resources. Um, so you think about Title IX. Um, so the, under the old, we talked about the old administration, what their guidance was. And it always said that they should, you know, have a, they should be able to go and have interim measures. They should be able to um, uh, seek medical care and have someone take them to the medical care. Mm -hmm. They should have access to crisis intervention programs or counseling. But we never said what the person who the the respondent needed, because I promise you, Nine times out of 10, after someone has committed an egregious act, because 85% of on-campus sexual assaults are committed by somebody that they know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, and I'm not saying this doesn't happen, but yeah. it's rarer than Rare. stranger danger rate. Based, you know, b- based on the data. Based on the data, yes. we can see that it is an acquaintance, someone that we know who has taken us by surprise or we could not believe that this happened. Mm-hmm. And so when we start saying that, we have to also look at that respondent because they're, that was somebody who they knew. So they just done something egregious and we don't know why. They could have, you know, they could have been on something uh, medicinal. They could have had alcohol. They could be having, they could be experiencing a chemical imbalance. There are a lot of factors um, that go into um, the mindset of a person. A lot of times they just want power and control, right? There, yeah. there are so many different dynamics but to that, we still have to offer them services. And if you are offering this as a, a, ba- a base unit on your campus, mm-hmm. then one can't say that you're only doing for one party and not the other. Man. It is just about making sure we have equitable practices. All if you, if I remove barriers, then I have become equitable. Yes. Versus me trying to make things equal. And say, well, I did this to you. Um, no, but if I remove the whatever the barrier was, mm-hmm. so if I didn't have a MOU or a memorandum of understanding with a community agency, I should do that because it not only helps the reporting party, but it, it also helps, helps the respondent. The respondent. 
I think, so, I think, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was, I was just going to say, like, th this is so powerful um, to understand how words or ambiguity or what is not said, what is not said or mentioned in, in language and law uh, can create problems. How do you, let's juxtapose previous administration, uh, Title IX policies, outlooks to current um, <laughs> administration. What, what's, is, is there any difference in that space? Gosh, yes. So, one, the the previous administration policy looked like guide looked looked like a um, guidance for educational program. The new uh, guidance that is being proposed actually has already passed the budget committee, so we're looking for it to drop any day. Mm -hmm. um, it's a criminal process, whereas in we we haven't. I don't think. Let me say this: it's definitely not trauma informed. Where the older guidance had the makings of trauma-informed. It wasn't quite there either, mm -hmm. but it was closer to there than where we are that has been removed. Um, one of the biggest things we could talk about is the hearing. Um, so let's say um, there's an investigation that has taken place and the decision maker has read the investigative outcome report and decided that we need to move forward with the hearing between the reporting party and the respondent. In the past, uh, the two did not have to be in the room together. Now, if we move to hearings, we have to have live hearings. Not only live hearings where the reporting party and the respondent are in the same room, the advisors get to cross-examine the party. You know, on so many different levels, I can see where that too would be um, a traumatic experience. Absolutely. It's re-traumatizing. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Well, you know, for the respondent as well, you know, um, I, I, mm -hmm. I, I'd say there was an instance where, uh, and this, this is where I think, um, really being a champion and knowing, uh, verbiage and lingo and, and how to, uh, use words, how to clearly articulate what you want to do. College presidents get in trouble all the time when they mean well and they say the wrong thing, mm -hmm. right? When they're addressing <laughs> right. their body. Because uh, first of all, you, you have to do it. I don't care. You can have a Title IX person, but the president has to say something, he or she. The chancellor has they to say to. something, right? They have they to. Have to. And I remember it, I, it does, it does because it allows you to, you know, let the, let the students know that you, you hear them uh, and Absolutely. it matters to you. Um, Absolutely. And, and also to know that justice, whichever side it falls on will be, um, will be had. Um, mm -hmm. I remember a particular um, scary incident for me um, as president. And I won't say which institution I was at, but okay. we had um, several instances of uh, sexual assault on the campus. And I was very careful. I like I, I labored over what I was going to say. And um, 
I got to the point to where we were having a conversation and I shared with them, you know, our campus is not well lit um, and there's data. I remember showing them a slide of what happens, how you are significantly less likely to be assaulted if you are in groups of two or more. Right. Um, I'm sorry. I said you didn't. Yeah, I did. Idea. Okay. And so what okay. I was saying was that uh, on campus, if you're walking on campus um, and it's nighttime, please make sure that you're walking in groups of two or you have someone with you. Right. So this mm-hmm. this decreases the chance of somebody driving by and et cetera, et cetera. One student mm-hmm. stood up and said, oh, my God, you're victim blaming. Mm hmm. How, mm-hmm. how is that victim blaming? So <clears throat> the premise is uh, that I caused this to happen to myself, right? And so where I understand where you're coming from, because you're thinking, well, aside from Title IX, common sense, how we were raised, always take a buddy. If you're, if you're going to go somewhere you're not familiar with, you take somebody with you. Mm-hmm. That way, you know, there's always a witness or there's two or is always better than one. However, when you start thinking about um, sexual assault, it becomes victim blaming because now you're saying that by mere mere fact that I was walking along, I deserve to be assaulted. Well, but see, let's let's break that down. All right. Mm-hmm. So, is it not true? What are the chances of you being sexually assaulted if you are by yourself or in a group of two or more? They are greater. So I, I was merely saying, and this is where, like, so I, I did not argue with the young lady. I simply said, and actually some students came to my um, defense, so I didn't have to say anything. Um, <laughs> but but what, what I was merely saying is that our campus is dark and it's mm-hmm. not well lit. Um, and people are grabbing folks and assaulting them. If mm-hmm. you are with another person while you're walking across a dark space, the chances of you being sexually assaulted are less likely. That sure. that and that that mattered because the scenario uh, in which people were being sexually assaulted, they were walking across a dark campus. And I completely agree with you, but we also have to understand that. So this goes back to what you were saying about knowing your audience and knowing right. the time and space we're in, right? Um, and terminology asking, and victim blaming. Because before that, I had no that. idea what the hell a victim blaming was, right? Like, <laughs> and it, it's very easy to do. Yeah, and and not because you're trying, and it's, and it's, your heart is in the right place. Like you're, you're. I'm giving you a safety message. Yeah, but sometimes, but the way that it is internalized and mm-hmm. perceived to some people comes off as saying. Because remember, you have to remember sometimes, and you're not a man, but as you know, you're not a woman, but as women, we're often told, don't wear short skirts, don't wear that, don't which make somebody, you know, which is dumb. Yeah. But, you know, you think about the older generation, and so it's another thing, right? We talk about generations on campus. Yeah. There are multiple generations on one campus, mm-hmm. and how we all approach uh, the topic of sexual assault is is wildly different. We come through so them with different lenses. You're right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So your generation Zers who came out of the womb being all knowing. I mean, I this group of young people. 
they are different. Pound for pound, like, they mm-hmm. might be the smartest, but boy, there is no reward or no label about them being <laughs> the the most hardest working either. I tell you that much. Right, and the, and the thing about it is, so it's, it's like with anything, with the good and the bad. Like so, when my, my mom is a baby boomer, but as she was raising my brother, who is nine years older than me, he's Generation X. I'm Generation Y. Well, millennial, early part millennial. Mm-hmm. Those were two different ways that she had to raise us. Yeah. Right? Because what was good in early 80s, early 90s did not work when we got to the 2000s and cash money took over for the 9 It was a little different when that cash <laughs> money put that stamp on the 99 2000. Shit you changed. Know, <laughs> you know, it changed. And, and the way my parents parented my brother and I, it, you know. We're night and day. And so that's kind of how now we say there's nothing new under the sun, but how we approach it has to be new. And so while we have to be very careful of our words as we're giving safety tips, but the safety tips should also come within, it goes back to what we're saying, how we change the culture on campuses, Mm -hmm. how we infuse this message in everything that we do, right? So you're not having to get up every uh, assembly or convocation to say, hey guys, remember it's dark, we're working on the capital campaign, but take a buddy when you walk. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying that because it could be a trigger for somebody who feels like that is a victim blaming statement, gotcha. you know, it should. This is this is, and, this is so helpful, Brianna, because it, it really underscores the need for people to really understand. It's one thing to Absolutely. say something, but to understand and to put into practice, like you, you, we talked about cultural shift and you need to educate people. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and then, and then rooted in title nine um, is this, or a commitment to it is a practice of it. So I, I picked that up as well. So that, that practice uh, and education has to permeate the campus. It has to start up top and it trickles yeah, down and it permeates uh, every inch uh, and crevice uh, of the campus. Have you seen that happen before? Have you seen a place have no idea as to what they were doing, not in a bad way, uh, mm-hmm. but make the shift? And, and and educate their populace to where everyone knew that this was important and and people felt safe there. Have you seen that happen on a campus? I have, I actually have. Um, and so, and this is, and I'm glad you said that, it has to start from the top down because if the campus community or even the community that the campus sits in does not see the sincerity or the earnest of the chancellor or the president, then no one else is going to take it serious. We take fundraising serious because we see how hard the chancellors and the provost and the president work for fundraising. So we as a or we as a community understand that that is what we need. We understand that that is is um, retention efforts are important because it's hard done. So if we're not making the changes at the top then the body, I always say if the head is broke, then the body can't work, right? Um, when I take on a client, I come in to do a consulting. I have turned down clients when they tell me, no, you can't train our board. Our board doesn't need this. I know right there that that is a school that I can't work with. Because if I can't get your board of trustees on board about how important this is and why it matters, 
then it really won't work because then the president who reports to the board is has, is going to go along those lines and not not necessarily see the benefit. And yeah, we have a Title IX coordinator. Yeah, we have policies, but is your Title IX uh, program a working and living program that matters and so I am often I, I often tell people we have to have administration on board because if administration is not on board um, everyone else who below who think that this is that this matters are going to meet be met with barriers and red tape mm. it matters um, it is a culture shift it is something that should be infused and not at a, as a scare tactic. And I want to make sure I say that to people because Title IX, I remember when I first uh, was named Title IX coordinator, I lost a lot of friends. <laughs> they were like, oh, no, we can't talk to you. You you the compliance lady. And I kept saying, I don't, why is there, why is there such a negative stigma from what you've heard about Title IX? And the only thing they know is we don't do right. We're going to have to pay the Office of Civil Rights money. We don't have money, so we're just going to put something together. Versus saying, this is a very real thing. This is happening. It has happened. And not just to our young ladies. It's happening to all of our students and sometimes to our faculty and staff. If we are educating, providing training, creating a culture shift, infused in all that we do from our safety to recruitment to student engagement that involves student services such as TRIO, all of those nuanced areas on campus, that is the only way that we're going to even begin to have a conversation that will begin to change the culture to mm. get to the root of where we need to get to. So you're, you're going even one step above the president. It is about the board of trustees um, understanding how important this is as well. Absolutely, because you'll be, you know, well, I'm sure you won't be surprised, but in my line of work um, that I've, I've been in Title IX since 2015, mm-hmm. uh, 14, sorry, since 2014. And in that time, I've had to meet with several board of trustee members who, who couldn't figure out how, to, who were either accused I or see. were witnesses mm-hmm. and wanted to know how did I end up here? Mm-hmm. Well, how did I end up here? And a lot of times they ended up in front of me just because they were not educated, not mm-hmm. understanding that, hey, you can't say that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you know, what what I I don't even know how to say this, but where is there grace for those moments where people uh, and I'm not talking about the acts, but we're talking about purely conversation like language. Um, a great example is what I could have been accused of, you know, being victim blaming. Like if you don't mm-hmm. know this stuff, that mm-hmm. that's like even when you're talking about. LGBTQ plus a and not knowing the terminology in that space, you can get your head cut off, chopped yeah. off for mm-hmm. not understanding uh, the appropriate language. And I, I, um, you know, have to remind people that while there's this insatiable appetite for us to all come to this space where we understand a language and terminology, et cetera, et cetera, there are some people who believe in the Bible and they are not moving from that position and they too must have respect for their position. Like we all get to have Mm -hmm. respect for how we feel. And I think the cancel culture 
um, makes it really oh. scary for people to be, I, I cringe when I think about how people are eviscerated for making mistakes or saying something that they have no idea, nor do they have no desire to even know the terminology for a space. Are they wrong for that? No, and I'm not going to say they, well, I, I hate the cancel culture. <laughs> I mean, I don't, that is definitely a Generation Z thing that they started. I'm just picking on them for now. But I must say, there is a level of grace needed. Um, yeah. Whenever I am training or consulting, I always tell campuses, you can't, you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah. But we also can't fix what you don't face. Mm. And that say, is say, say that one more time, one more time. You don't know what you, you don't know. You don't know what you don't know, but you also can't fix what you don't face. Mm. And so I I get personally offended when campuses decide, not necessarily not to take my services, but when they rebuff Title IX as, hey, we, we have policies, we're doing what we're supposed to do, we're done. I, I, I personally get upset because I'm saying, if Title IX is so nuanced, as you could tell in this conversation, like we haven't even hit a majority of what Title IX covers, oh, right? No, not but at all. Even in just this one conversation, it's so nuanced in language, mm -hmm. um, in policies, in protocol. All of those things matter, and so I, I, I give people grace. Well, we're, right, we're, I didn't know. we're we're doing a part one and a part two because uh, this it has to be that place. And to your point, um, we've not even scratched the surface about about those things, uh, about the many different complexities of of of, of Title IX. Um, let me ask you this and, and this will wrap up our part one uh, and okay. we'll have you back on here in the next couple of days to do part two. Uh, which I think is really important. Um, how does the intersection of Title IX and student retention work? What is this? What is that? I, I you know, we had a you know conversation before this conversation, mm -hmm. and you noted that that was something that you really wanted to talk about, and this one struck me. Um, and I want to know about this. What What are your thoughts on the intersection of Title IX and the student and student retention? Because on face, it makes sense. If I don't feel good, I'm not going there. Uh, if I feel good, right. I'm staying there. Right? Um, Basically. Yeah. <laughs> so when people talk about Title IX, I always tell people your first impression of a campus, of a student's impression of you starts before they step on campus. It starts before they even apply to your university. Um, and so when, when you start thinking about the intersection of how does student retention work with Title IX, it is the nucleus of all things. If someone does not feel safe, or if there are students who are on HB, HBCU confessions on Twitter talking about the things that have happened to them, um, students who have, are still in high school read that. Um, that's not going to make a student want to come, nor will it make a parent feel comfortable about dropping their precious darling off to you. Um, if you haven't figured that out, if a, the first six weeks of the semester is called the red zone. And I also often tell universities, this is when you need to make sure that you have programming, your training, however that looks, right? You make it applicable to your campus. If your campus is big on um, theater and drama, then you, you create dramatic uh, opportunities or engage, engaging um, shows for that to happen. 
student student affairs. Uh, I just did a training with one campus, and within this training, there was trio. Um, I believe the advising and counseling center and admissions, and then all of the dean of students. The dean of students was in there, and housing. This is so important because when we start talking about Title IX, they thought I was just going to tell them what the rules were. We made them go do programming. I said, we're going to talk about programming. And when you start thinking about the programming that's needed, I don't even mean programming such as students come to the program. Something simple as if your if Red Life could create a, a avenue for students to safely receive their food. Like you mentioned, your campus may be dark in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Well, this particular campus that I was training at, they're one way on, one way off. The residence halls are all the way in the back. The campus is also dark. But because the Grubhub and Postmates are not allowed on campus, the students have to trek from the back of the campus to the front and then back again. But creating a service, just a, somebody who is on duty to say, hey, these are the times that we're, that we're taking orders. We will pick the orders up, drive them back to you on a golf course, and distribute. Little things that make it easier for your students. One, you're being student-centered. Two, you're still being safe without having any victim-blaming concepts coming about. And three, you're giving them a plus. People always want pluses. Like, what is the reason I'm coming to your school? What is the plug? Like, what are the things that I'm going to get? Those viable things that may not be in your brochure. Um, small things such as that help with retention because retention is not always academic. And I have to tell people that all the time. Retention is not always academic. Mm. Again, that goes back to if we are not dealing with the psychosocial aspects of a student, their, their, their social surroundings, their physical and mental well-being, then we have absolutely lost that student. They may be coming to class, but they are zombies. It really, I have seen a university have really high spirit, and then something such as t- multiple Title IX cases can kill the morale of your students. And one, now your attrition rates are blown, right? Because everybody is leaving. Or I have nothing to do. And so because there's nothing to do, I find myself getting into situations um, that may prove to be harmful. It's, it's also important um, to be out front with messaging when those things happen to you can lose a campus by not responding or poorly Mm -hmm. responding or not providing grief counseling or not being able to hear the heartbeat of the campus i i agree with you that that can that can destroy a campus quicker uh than most people really imagine Absolutely. Like I said, students know their rights. And that's another thing that I think we underestimate. Students know their rights. Uh, We're in the age of Me Too. And also another thing that is very important why I feel like Title IX is more than just compliance. It is actually should be uh, infused in our culture. Because think about so many of students we talked about have already experienced trauma, but they had no outlet. Or they were not educated, so they didn't know what to call a thing a thing. Yes. I have had so many students to disclose to me in the middle of a training because I gave a definition and they had no clue that what they experienced two years, three years ago was, was that thing what we just talked about. Yes, was indeed. that thing. Yeah. You know? And so it's like you said, it is the messaging. It is the, the care. 
it is being holistic in all that we do. And I personally have seen that that helps with your retention because the students feel like even if one thing may be going wrong uh, academically, everything else is going right. So it pushes that student to want to do better because if you're being trauma-informed, like we talked about earlier, you've already set up those resources. Mm. That are that are that serve as safety nets and catch alls for those students. Now, you, I'm not saying that that's going to save everyone. You know, some people we can't save. Sometimes trauma does things to people um, in a matter of way that they can't. They probably need to leave and cannot function. Yes, but for the it's, most it's part, tricky. Right. I mean, and it's case by case. But I say generally, if we are doing our part as a campus and making sure that we have created. Um, trauma-informed solutions and pro- programs or programmatic activity, so to speak, that speak to what our students' needs are and making sure they are part of the process, right? Like, I hate when I go on campus and they're like, oh, we had a meeting and we met. I said, did you have any students in the meeting? No. So you met about student issues and you didn't invite at least a student leader to tell you what the pulse of the campus is happening? We have a problem. <laughs> We have a we we have a problem, this, um, this especially is, as it relates to Title Nine. This is so tricky, man, and fascinating on on so many different levels, and frightening. Um, mm-hmm. And I say frightening. I, I say it's tricky because of what can happen when you are not um, acutely aware of what inactivity looks like. What improper training and um, professionals on your campus will do to you. Um, It is uh, fascinating because uh, how the, the impact of title nine, how quickly things can shift. People lose jobs, careers, um, people are sued. um, And, and, and this is, you know, really informative because we all need to spend time, not just for the sake of um, protecting ourselves, but educating ourselves. Yeah. And if everybody's Absolutely. serious, if everybody's serious about understanding, I think that's where grace comes in. Like the more mm-hmm. people that are educated, the more grace you will find because you're able to to identify uh, injurious behavior from behavior that is uh, not injurious intentionally, right? Um, it wasn't exactly. intended to be that way. And I, I, I think um, I think there is just so much this space. When you look at the gross malfeasance of places like um, Penn State, Michigan State, um, all these major institutions that had the abuse been widespread on our campuses, the public outrage, the public outcry would have been enough for people to come in and close us down completely. Just, exactly. just I, shut the doors down. Also, the the bad publicity alone, we know that it only takes one right. bad article that circulates, uh, especially now um in the in the age that we are, people are sensationalizing everything. So and it could have been a mistake. And right? <laughs> yes, yes, that part. But what I wanted to say is that 
this also really underscores or amplifies how unfair Title IX is and how a wealthy man, place, person, or thing fares far better than the marginalized. Oh, but isn't that in, in all things? That's why it I, is. I told but you, it's I sad. Social it <laughs> it is, sad. but it's sad in terms because we're ta- we're talking about education, right? When when you send your child to school, the last thing you're thinking about, circa all these crazy ass people getting guns and shooting up, is right. a school shooting. Wasn't worried about right. that. Like you might get hit with a little stick or whatever back in the day, but you, <laughs> you, you, you might get jumped on the back of the school bus, but there was not going to be a mass shooting. Right. And that was not a thought. Process. That was not a thought. And, and even now, like you don't think that title nine matters if you are wealthy or well-resourced or the outcome of it. And I think, you know, the average reasonable person can draw a distinction between wealth and power and affluence and influence and how impactful that is, regardless of what situation you're in. But when you just mm-hmm. think about Title IX, man, mm, I, th- this, this conversation, I'm, I'm, um, I'm just happy that we're going to have two, maybe three of these joints because there's, there's a lot. No, I'm serious, Brianna, because, um, we, we have, while we've had good conversation and we've been going for, you know, 75 minutes already. Um, we've had good conversation. It doesn't feel like it. I think it's going to be really, really helpful in having people broach uh, conversations. And I know that I'm going to have you on my campus here at Wiley College um, to just talk to our student body. Even though we have a a practitioner here, I think um, sometimes on campus, the voice um, may not resonate the way it would when you're off campus um, Mm -hmm. for someone who's off campus. But I'm gonna work on when we can go back outside and play uh, work on. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> work on having you come uh, over to our space. Um, I wanna, I wanna uh, put a bow on this first okay. uh, conversation and um, ask the last question, which we've we've touched on, and it's probably not a good idea to go into that because we're talking. I, I wanted to get into uh, the social justice land, so we won't do that. Uh, I tell you what, we're gonna do. We're going to close out with two things. One, um, one is some rapid fire questions. And the last will be your parting shots or a segue from this conversation to part two. All right. So are you ready for the rapid fire? I am ready. Okay. Uh, Delta or AKA? Delta. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, Favorite ice cream. I mean, not favorite ice cream, favorite dessert. Uh, peach cobbler. Uh, with ice cream or not? No ice cream. No ice cream. Uh, mm-hmm. Football or basketball? Football all day. College or professional? Professional. Favorite team? Jacksonville Jaguars. <laughs> Boy, you are worse than I. I'm a Buccaneer. We have at least had some success with Doug Williams 
and then with Tony Dungy and then John Gruden winning the Super Bowl. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not a Tom Brady fan. I am a Buccaneer, diehard Buccaneer fan. So we'll see what happens there. But boy, I, I feel a whole lot better than 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 you Listen, and them Jacksonville Jaguars. I can tell you that. We part. have been horrible for years, but I ride for Duval. To I'm with Will you. I'm off. with you. And you I'm know, a, um, I do I'm I still with have you. season tickets, and I've lived here seven years now. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm with you. I you know I I root for the Jaguars because they're a hometown, but I've been a Buccaneer since I was a little kid. You know, and they they had a black quarterback, and that was enough for me. Um, so I've yeah. been with the Buccaneers since they were the Yuccaneers. So my old, look, my old school team was used to be the Houston Oilers, and then it was Tennessee Titans. I got um, you. I got you. But then we, you know, we fell off. <laughs> you did. You did. Um, <laughs> um, best homecoming you've ever been to? Oh, of course it was Sam U. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, circa 2005. Circa 2000. Those were crazy years. Was Humphrey still there? No, Humphreys left my freshman year, okay. Sam. Um, I can't even tell you who was the president in 05. I, I think look, it was I, Oh, I think Gates. I think it was Gaines was still there. Gaines, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. I think Gaines was still there. Cool, mm-hmm. cool. Uh, last question: uh, pumps or sneakers? Sneakers. Sneakers. In this yeah. day, Jordan. Look, I, used to, I used to be Jordans <laughs> or ones. Ones. I'm, I'm classic. Classic. I like it. <laughs> you are classic because everything out of Duval County is classic. Everything. Classic. Yes. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, parting shots for this um, this wonderful conversation that that just simply touched on um, the God. I mean, the expansiveness of Title three, the implications of it, the policies. Um, I'm so glad that the next conversation we have will We'll touch more on policy. Um, we we, we t- talked a little bit about policy, or actually a great little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to dig a little more into policy in our next conversation, and um, specifically about um, the social ju- justice lens. Um, but what kind of parting shots would you like to leave uh, as we uh, close out this first of uh, two-part, maybe three-part series here, my sister? The first uh, that I want to leave people with is if everything that we're saying is so confusing, keep this in mind. Treat others the way that you want someone to treat you. (laughs) And if you keep that in mind while you're thinking about Title IX, then you can't go wrong in in harm doing someone. Boom. Couldn't have said it any better. Wouldn't expect anything less. Again, you have been uh, listening to uh, the podcast for the Higher Education Leadership Foundation for thoughts of our founders. We've had none other than the extraordinarily talented uh, sister Brianna Haynes, who has really found her passion, I think, at least one of them. Uh, helping uh, institutions navigate through the complicated um, space of Title IX and all those things. I'm Herman Felton. This has been a blast um, and want to thank you for listening to us. Until the next time, um, make sure you join a loyalty and rewards program 
get your points, make your money work for you, um, and be kind to each other. God bless you all. Peace and blessings.